reader, I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Karen Uten about Dixon Descending. I have always been fascinated by Mount Everest and what it takes to climb it, especially in recent times when it has become such a crowded place. As soon as I saw this fiction title that was set partly on Everest, I knew I needed to read it. What happens to Dixon, both on the mountain and afterwards, is a compelling and riveting story. Karen's fiction has appeared in Glimmer Train, North American Review, and elsewhere. She has been a fellow at both the Institute for the Humanities at the University of Michigan and the Pew Fellowships in the Arts. She received an MFA from the University of Michigan and lives in Maryland. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Karen. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm well as well, and I'm so excited to chat with you because I just loved Dixon Descending. Oh, thank you so much. So let's get started with first me telling you not only have I loved it, but it looks like many other people are loving it because I was looking up your reviews today, and you have glowing reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, plenty of others. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's been really, really encouraging. Yeah. I hope so. That's fabulous. Well, will you give me a quick synopsis of Dixon Descending before we dive into my questions? Sure. I think of it generally as a book about someone who does the most audacious thing he can think of and then has to live with the consequences of it. So Dixon, uh, who was a former Olympic-level runner, gets talked into climbing Mount Everest by his brother. They're both in their late 40s and are average guys. His brother is a a tech guy, and Dixon is a school psychologist. And in order to go to Mount Everest, they have to really leave behind their lives and leave behind things that will have consequences for them. 
So when they get to Mount Everest and it turns out to be a very different trip than they imagine, Dixon then has to descend from not just the mountain, but from the consequences of what happened on the mountain and descend from his lofty idea of who he was. And when he comes back home, he has difficult things to face about the truth of what happened on that mountain. How did you come up with the idea for this one, including the Mount Everest component, and then also focusing on a tragedy and its aftermath? I don't want to have any spoilers, but, you know, obviously mm-hmm. there is some kind of tragedy, as we know. Yes. I like to think that this chose me. I really had not paid any attention to Everest until the late 90s when there was the disaster on Everest that sparked Into Thin Air and the Everest IMAX movie. And my question at that point was, who does this? And then years later, about 15 years ago, Dixon appeared to me. I saw him standing in front of his school, and clearly something had happened. And, you know, he kind of revealed to me that he'd been to, the, to Mount Everest. And whatever the aftermath was, it left him thin and fragile. And I thought, what happened to him? And that's kind of how it, it started for me. Um, the whole idea of what happens on that mountain and what happens after the mountain, that felt very important to me. And I didn't find a lot about aftermath, but one of the things that really helped me as I was researching was the 50th anniversary of the men who walked on the moon, the 50th anniversary of our moonwalk. And at that point, they started to talk about what happened to the lives of those astronauts once they came home and how so many of them really suffered afterward. And I thought, oh, yeah, when you do the most audacious thing you can think of, there have to be consequences. Yes, because there's not going to be anything else you can do that will be equal to walking on the moon or getting to the top of Everest. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's such an interesting analogy, and I'm not sure I would have made it, but I love it because I think it's perfect. Yeah, it was. It really came to me as I was watching sort of the disintegration of the marriages that they were talking about for the astronauts and also just how disjointed they felt. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly what would happen, um, especially if something goes wrong and something does go wrong for Dixon and Nate. And so you have to think about what then, you know. Absolutely. And I think the first time that I realized what a crazy thing it is to climb Everest, and I don't mean in terms of how high it is and and all of that, but how many people are doing it and you have to line up and there are dead bodies and there are oxygen tanks, like all of that, because you think, oh, it's this remote mountain. I'm going to go up there and be all by myself. And you're nowhere near all by yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the thing that was really interesting to me in my research, because I, I definitely started from the place of why in the world would you do this? Who does this? And in researching and then actually talking to alpinists, and I'm distinguishing alpinists from the Dixons of the world. Dixon and his brother have the money and they pay for a guide and Sherpas, and they're focused on getting to the summit. Alpinists are the people who are driven to climb mountains all of them, anywhere, all the time. And those are people who understand that climbing a mountain may not necessarily result in getting to the summit. They know that a third of the time they may not get to the summit. But 
they're looking for what one climber said to me was a good experience of the mountain. And that's when it started to make sense to me, the whole business of climbing a mountain, because in some ways, I think I saw a parallel with what I was doing, you know, writing a novel. I mean, who needs another novel? But you're driven to do it in the same way that you think, who needs to climb another mountain? But there's something that fills a place in you and you do it and you're doing it for different reasons than just getting to the summit, I think, for climbers. Or those people, as you mentioned, that are climbing Everest to say they climbed Everest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just to have a a good, you know, thing to tell at a dinner party. (laughs) When you started into that, I thought you were going to say, and after I did all this research, I think I'm going to climb Everest. And I was like, oh, no. It's like, well, that's impressive. (laughs) Uh, We go to Colorado every summer. And enjoy climbing those mountains, which are vastly different than Everest. But it's really nice to get up in the mountains and climb and enjoy, you know, being out in nature. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to be so different than trying to attack Everest, especially if you're not really prepared, which I know Dixon and Nate tried to be prepared and they they did their research and they they tried to get themselves physically ready. But I think mentally, which is what your book focuses on partly, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. impossible to get ready for. I think you just have to go and see what happens. Yeah. And, and not just physically, but physiologically. One of the things that there's no accounting for is whose body will take to high altitude and whose will not. And you don't know. And there's not training that you can do per se. I mean, I, I guess if you um, were studied in a lab, maybe you'd know, but usually uh, you don't know how you're going to react, how your body's going to react to high altitude until you get there. And some people just naturally are better at it. That's a very valid point. And not only that, but it can vary time to time. And the side effects or the results of the high altitude can yeah. impact you in such a different way. You know, and depends on how long you're up there. I mean, it's, it's, as you said, it's not a certain thing at all. That's exactly right. And each climb, from what I understand, can be vastly different depending on all kinds of things about atmosphere, temperature, just anything that's going on with your body and how well you acclimatize. Yeah. And have slept and some of those kinds of things. Yes, there are many factors that go into it. Well, I want to hear more about your research because one of the things that I loved so much about the book was your depictions of Everest. I mean, I felt like I was there with them and I loved that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. I surprised myself by how much I got into it. And I'll start this by saying I am anything but an athlete. And in fact, when I told one friend, a writer friend early on what I was writing about, she admits now that she thought, oh, my God, (laughs) she's lost her mind. (laughs) Okay, I love that. She's like, "Uh, maybe she's focusing on the wrong thing here. Yeah, but there is so much out there about Everest. And I started by looking at sort of um, some historical data. So I certainly read up about Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in 1953, who first summited, and even George Mallory in the 1920s, uh, who may or may not have summited and who was lost on the mountain. And I looked at the different kind of gear. I mean, there are so many, there are videos, DVDs that say how to train for any high altitude mountain. There There are these regimens you can undertake. There are books, there are DVDs, all of these things. So I read a lot. I watched a lot. And in describing the mountain, I certainly had a map of the mountain and 
all of the all of the camps going up to the summit. And I also sort of did an annotation of, okay, what does it look like here? What are the what are the things that that mark this particular terrain? And then I often looked at photographs of the mountain and described them for myself. The hardest part about the Everest research was figuring out what to leave out because there's so much to cover about the climb, what can go right, what can go wrong, what's extraordinary, how how um, people relate to the Sherpas, all of that. And I had to finally say, I've got to narrow my focus so that this is what Dixon sees. This is just what applies to him and his climb. So I had to really very closely look through his eyes alone. Okay, I love that focus because I was wondering that because I'm sure you do all of this research and you learn all these cool details and fun facts. And you're like, I'm going to put it all into the book. But then, of course, that's only a portion of your story is Everest and then what happens. So you can't info dump it all. So it's interesting. I like that you just focused on how Dixon would have approached it and what he would have envisioned and then seen. Yes, yes. And I had to also pick the year carefully because in, um, you know, starting from, I guess, 2010, 2011, getting into 2012 and beyond up to maybe 2019, there were all kinds of events on Everest that would have really had such an impact on a climb that it might change it. And even some of the things such as in 2012, there was a fairly famous Black climber who attempted to be the first Black man, Black American man to um, summit Everest. So I knew um, that Dixon had to go before that um, if he wanted to claim the title of first. After 2012, you know, we've got earthquakes, we've got avalanches, there's a revolt that the Sherpas have on the mountain, and all of those things would have taken over the story. So I had to really carefully think, what year is this where I can focus on Dixon and block out everything else? Okay, that is so interesting, and I'm not sure I would have thought about that. But you definitely do want to be careful, because if not, you'll have all these readers writing you back, well, that couldn't have happened in 2016, because such and such was going on. So that's so smart. Yeah, yeah. It really is a fascinating thing. I mean, I I understand it and admire it as much as I don't. The whole idea of of climbing Everest, I don't completely get it, but I do understand that for some people it is one of those things that makes them feel most alive. And I think for people particularly who are climbers who climb all the time, there's so much in touch with the mountain and the feeling of the mountain and the business of it being alive. Because the thing about Everest is it's really, you're climbing up a glacier. It's constantly moving. So while you're sleeping, the glacier is moving just a little bit um, at base camp. So you wake up in a slightly different spot than where you went to sleep. It's groaning. It's creaking. It's cracking under your feet. It lets you know I'm a living being. And you've got to contend with that. That's amazing to me. That is amazing. The whole thing completely intrigues me and it has for a very long time, but I'm the same way as you. I find it fascinating and interesting, but I don't totally understand it. Mm-hmm. And, and also the part that I think is really hard for me is I'm such a type A person. Like I don't like to not have control and I think you get up there and you have no control because there are all these other people up there. Yes. And so, you, you know, you can't say, OK, I'm ready to go right this second because you're waiting in line behind 20 more people. Yes, yes. And 20 more people whose skill set you are not sure of. 
There will be people there who are very, very prepared, but there will also be people there who have decided, oh, well, I can do this because, you know, there are ropes and there's a Sherpa who carry my stuff and somebody will just help pull me along if I need it. And those are the people who tend to hold up the line. And I would also imagine there are people who, even though they may have the skills, get up there and are terrified because some of this is just mind-bending stuff. In order to go over the Kumbu Icefall, you are climbing over crevasses so deep you can't see the bottom of them. And you're climbing them on aluminum ladders that are strung together over the... <laughs> Can you imagine? I can't. I see those photos and it is just terrifying. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, it is very mental on top of the physical. And I just don't know that everybody always understands that. That's right. That's absolutely right. So, so for Dixon, I think Part of what the exhilaration is, is that he, there's a way in which he loves the suffering of it. You know, it's, he describes it at one point as the exquisite suffering of being on Everest because it proves to him that he can do it. And because he was a runner at such a high level, he knew how to work through pain. He knew how to push himself. And this is in many ways, the ultimate test. And part of what he knows about himself is that he feels like he can endure whatever there is. And that's the part that he wonders about in his brother. Mentally, is my brother tough enough to stick it out? Exactly. He goes into it with so much excitement, exhilaration, preparation, and then to have it go so sideways. I think is really difficult. And that's why I love the Dixon descending, as you mentioned earlier. He's descending the mountain, but he's also descending the backside of what happened. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I really liked the format, the way you kind of toggle back and forth. There's Mm -hmm. this foreshadowing and you're building up to this dread. You know, something's happened. How did you decide to structure it that way? Well, that is, you know, as much as the Everest pieces were exciting and had a natural sort of flow to them. I struggled much more with the sections back on Earth. And in fact, I toggled everything around. I changed structures for a long time. This book took 15 years to write. So only in the last two versions, I suppose, did I find the right structure. It really took a long time. I initially thought that I wanted the all of Everest to be sort of encapsulated in the center of the book and to be sort of the explanation for what was going on around it. But my initial readers were like, you are burying the lead. (laughs) You've got to get us to Everest faster. So it really took some work to think about about that and and learning more about teaching myself more about um, increasing the tension and the pacing and just really Sticking in there and struggling through it, I think. Because I really liked that. I kept thinking, I'm just dying to know what happened. And so you just keep building up to that. And I thought it was paced very well. Oh, great. Great. And I really loved everything that happens when Dixon gets home. He's trying to find himself. He's trying to mentor. He ends up working somewhere else for a little while. I like the guy he befriended there. I just felt like you had a lot of really interesting characters. Thank you. Well, you know what I discovered um, in writing this book? I had never written from the perspective of a man before. I've always written 
often first person and always a woman or a young woman, even an older woman. So it was a surprise when Dixon appeared to me. And it took some time to think about men's voices. And I naturally had more women in the book earlier on. And I discovered along the way that this really was a book about these Black men and their relationships to one another and about their loss and also about burdens that they carry. And once I understood that, it felt very special to me because I was exploring new territory for me. And I loved that part about it, I have to say. I agree. And I loved that you focused on two Black men and their relationship with each other and the things they were doing in our everyday world. Yes, yes. That was important to me. I, I wanted to, to show just who they were and what their consequences were. And I, you know, I felt like I need to get these voices right. So I spent a good deal of time talking to, I have a large extended family, so talking to a lot of my male cousins and uncles and um, writing to them also and writing to male friends and seeing what do their voices look like on page and, you know, just in emails. And that helped a good deal. It must have been fascinating trying to figure all of that out. It was. It was. It taught me a good deal. And I realized how much respect I had for these men. And the question that came up in the middle of all of this that really riveted me was in talking to a couple of men, I heard them say, one of the things you think about if you are the kind of man who feels you have some responsibility to um, the next generation, you think about, do I help everybody I can as much as I can? Meaning that if there's one person who shows me uh, he doesn't really want my help, I move on to the next person. Or do I help people and never give up? Am I going to be the kind of person who says, I'm never going to give up on you, you particular, this person, no matter what they put me through. And I heard that in different versions from a lot of different sources. And I thought, this is part of the burden of being a Black man in America, you know, who is aware, and also of the responsibility. It's part of what you carry with you. And I knew that that had to be a part of Dixon's life. And you did a great job of doing that. Again, I don't want to spoil anything, but I felt that that was really well done. There is a character as the story progresses that he struggles with, and I loved how you resolved that. You know, that character, Shiloh, was supposed to show up in one scene early on and go away, and he would not leave. <laughs> and I can see that knowing Shiloh. He's like, forget it. I'm not only going to be in one scene here, lady. Like, you need to make sure I'm a better part of this book. But I can see that as, yes. as he plays out. And I just, I, I liked the way their relationship developed. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, he became important to me and I didn't, I didn't expect that. Yeah. yeah, my heart really went out to him. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked maybe a little bit about this, but what surprised you the most when writing this one? How long it took. <laughs> <laughs> well, 15 years is a long time. But I can see that because I'm sure you were working and doing other things. And so it took a while to get it all down. But yeah, that, that is a while. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing about it is it's so trite in many ways. You hear it all the time. But I really had to become comfortable with failure. You know, there are several. I, I have the most amazing community of 
writer friends, some of whom have read this book three or four times in different versions. And they always kept me on track, you know, when there would be a time when I'd say, oh, I don't think I can do it. I have to stop. They'd say, okay, fine. What if you tried so-and-so? How about this? How about that? And I'd say, no, I'm done. Obviously, it's not going to work. Uh-huh. Are you sure? <laughs> and and they just kept pushing me. And some of them not so gently. Like, you know, I, I remember the first time I sent it out to an agent who said no. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm lamenting it. And a friend of mine said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I'll just stop it. She said, that's ridiculous. That's like going on one job interview not getting it, and then deciding, ah, oh, this working thing just isn't for me. I'm going to have to do something else. <laughs> I'm not going to work. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> right, exactly. So it took a long time and a lot of struggle. But, you know, as one of my old teachers used to tell me, the story had more to teach me, and I had to keep going back to it. And I think sometimes as things do develop over time, you have to, to leave it alone for a little bit and come back to it. And then some new idea comes to you or Shiloh is talking to you or Dixon is saying, wait a minute. So I think that it does sometimes need that setting it aside for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there were a couple of times where I, you know, really there have been about seven complete versions of the book, even though and even more drafts. There were times when I'd get to the end of a version and then something in me would be really quiet. I would read through the whole thing and I'd get quiet and I'd think something is not right. So I think it took me a long time to figure out what Dixon needed to do about his truth, you know, toward the end, how I would resolve it all. It took me a while to figure that out. I can see that because it took him a while. Yes. And it used to take even longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about this as well, but you focus on ambition, guilt, survival, what we owe each other, and personal salvation. These are all very important themes. Did you mean to set out to handle each one of those, or did they sort of develop as you were developing these drafts? I think they developed along with the drafts. They were the things that I sort of discovered were in there. I was trying to keep a really close laser focus on Dixon, who he is, what would he do in this situation, and, and you know, who he becomes, who he finds out that he is, which is really part of what happens when he comes home, what he discovers about who he is after being on that mountain. And there was a wonderful quote that guided me by David Brashears, who's a, a climber, that says, Essentially, the mountain doesn't care if we're here or not. It's only what, what the mountain reveals about us that has any meaning. And I thought, that's it. And I think that really drove me as I was thinking about who he was, um, much more than those things that you just mentioned, which, you know, eventually became apparent to me. That makes sense. I love that quote. Yeah, that's a great quote. Well, let's talk a little bit about your title and your cover. Was it always Dixon Descending? And then let's talk about the cover. Oh, no. I think that's maybe the 12th title. Because <laughs> you figure maybe there's a different title for at least every version, every year, all of that. There was a time when I thought I needed to get Everest in there. Then I needed to, to do something else. I thought, oh, focus on what comes after. No, let's focus on this. 
So it took a while before my, my agent and I actually came up with Dixon Descending. And you were asking me about the cover? I love the cover. And I was just curious how it came about. I know sometimes authors don't have as much say, but it can be a process. So I was just curious about mm-hmm. your cover process. I have had, I, I have to say, you know, having written this book over 15 years, having published my first story 40 years ago and thinking, you know, that at least 30 years ago, I would have published my first book. If I was going to wait, then I should have this experience because I've had the most amazing agent and editor. And the whole team at the publishing house has been wonderful. So I feel like the cover was collaborative. They came up with several options. We talked about them. I tweaked them. We, you know, looked back and forth. We played with colors and other things and then settled on that one, which I really do love. So I I got to be a part of it. I always love to hear that because I think it should be collaborative. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the cover designers do their job because they're very good at it. But Mm -hmm. you have so much more personal experience with the book and what you're envisioning for the cover. And I just think it's perfect. And I love how the lettering has the kind of snow blowing over it. And it's just a beautiful cover. Yes, I love it, too. I'm glad you like it. And there's another Everest book coming out, nonfiction, that comes out in April. Everest, Inc., have you heard about it? No, I haven't. I am a big pair of fiction and nonfiction together. I really think it's so interesting to do that. And so when I saw that recently, I thought, oh, good, there's another pair that I can put together. It's by Will Somebody. I haven't read it yet, but I have it. But it's called Everest, Inc., and I'm sure it has some subtitle, but the main title is Everest, Inc., and it's nonfiction. Oh, fantastic. I'll have to look for that. Yes, it'll be a good pair with yours. Yeah, I have such a, I have two bookcases full of of Everest books, actually. All kinds of everything from, you know, um, a YA title that Scholastic Books did, um, a teenager who summited Mount Everest, to books um, by the widows of, of climbers who've come back. There are all kinds of things out there about Everest. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. It is. And, and that it's such a part. The other part of this that was interesting for me was that it's not necessarily a part of Black culture that we climb mountains. So when Dixon is telling his community that's what he wants to do, they're like, you're doing what? I loved that. Because that was actually one of my first thoughts when I saw your book. I was like, oh, you don't really read a lot about Black people climbing Everest, you know, in any of the stories I've seen. So I was like, oh, that's, and then to have that play out in the book, I was laughing. I was like, oh, okay, that's great. It's just sort of off of our radar, even though the first Black man to summit Mount Everest was South African and the first Black American to summit was a woman. Oh, really? Yes, Sophia Dannenberg. I love that. So, yeah, absolutely. So it does happen, but it is rare. Um, So last year, it was so exciting to me that the first team of all-Black climbers went to Everest full circle. Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to have to start paying closer attention to Mount Everest news. But was the the YA book No Summit Out of Sight? Uh, No. Okay. I think it's Everest, my story. Okay, well, it doesn't matter, but there's a book that my kids read. They're all in their 20s now, but mm-hmm. two 20-year-olds and an 18-year-old. And they loved this book that came out maybe 10 years ago called No Summit Out of Sight. And it's about this kid who I think was 13 and 14 at the time who becomes the youngest person to summit all of the, the big mountains, you know, the oh, kind of seven best, yes, the seven yeah. tallest mountains on the continents, whatever they call that. And mm-hmm. it was just such a fascinating story. 
I ended up reading it because they kept reading passages to me as each one of them read it. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. This book. So it was really interesting. And I know Everest is a part of his story, but it's not just focused. The whole story. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he did the seven summits. Wow. Isn't that amazing? He actually ended up doing eight because I guess there's a dispute between mm-hmm. Australia and Indonesia, I think, as to which mountain is should count as the seventh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was mm-hmm. like, okay, this is so interesting. And I think the Everest Inc. book focuses a little bit on what a portion of your book kind of highlights that it's this industry. And so not yeah. just the people that are the alpinists that climb because they love to climb, but all of these people who just want to say I climbed Everest and kind of how crazy all that's become. I have not read the book, but that's what it looks like from the, okay. the title and the cover. So I just thought, oh, that's interesting. That is, it is interesting because that is definitely the thing that one of the things that did surprise me when I was talking to alpinists, they really made the distinction between those who were the alpinists and those who were thinking of it, as they said, in a transa- as a transactional affair, you know, that you pay your money so you should get to the top as opposed to the real alpinists. And it did surprise me that there was this, there really is a, a distinction in many ways and for many climbers so much that there are many alpinists who won't do Everest anymore because it has become so commercial, because it is so crowded and often dangerous as a result. Exactly. I was just going to say that. I know that has become a thing, that they just stay away from it because they don't want to mm-hmm. put themselves in danger, but also just because of the crowds. But I mean, we even see that not to any extent like it is there, but we see that in Colorado. You know, there's these like 12,000 feet 13,000 feet summits and people are heading up no water, no preparation. They're just by themselves. And you're like, you do understand this is like a 10 hour climb and it's really rigorous. So I do think there are a lot of people who just sort of set out with no preparation. I mean, obviously, you have to have a little preparation for Everest, but not enough or as much as they should. Yeah, no, it's amazing. You know, you hear stories of people who don't know how to use crampons on ice and don't know how to belay, don't know all kinds of things like that. And yet they've paid you know, sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 for some expedition to help cart them to the top. And that's just so dangerous for everyone because everybody is at the mercy of the weakest climber in many ways. Exactly. So if I was an expert, I would say, I think I'll just climb a different mountain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that once I realized that knowing who Dixon is, because he is in many ways a perfectionist and perfectionistic enough so that he found a lane and he stays in it. He's not necessarily often nudged out of it because he doesn't want to lose. But once he gets to the mountain and he understands that he's being seen as, you know, one of these amateurs who's coming up there, that really gets to him. (laughs) That He can't be seen as an alpinist and he wonders, what am I doing wrong? All of those things that then echo, I think, later in, in his life about what have I done wrong all the time? What have I not understood about who I am? Exactly. They sort of parallel each other. Mm-hmm. What happens to him on Everest and what's happening to him in his life. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, oh, I've read so many things. I'm, I, you know, I used to feel bad about being a relatively slow reader. But then I heard um, Yi Yun Lee say, you know, it takes so long to write a book. I want to honor how long that takes by taking my time 
reading books. And I thought, yes, that's right. So, you know, I I, I don't want somebody to take 15 years to read my book. But <laughs> they don't have to read it I'm all on page day. four. I'm on page 20. <laughs> uh, that's too funny. The two books that I've read most recently that have just really blown me away. The first one is Time's Undoing by Cheryl A. Head. I love that book so much. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I I love it. It's one of my top reads of last year, but keep talking. Yeah. Sorry. It's a wonderful book. It really, and I love her structure. She's she's going back and forth in time and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat feeling like, okay, what's going to happen? I know something's going to happen here. Are we going to get to it or, or do I live, get to live in a little bit of peace until then? <laughs> exactly. And the paralleling of the two cities, Birmingham yes. and Detroit. Yes, yes. That, that's just a wonderful book. Before that, I, I finally read The Leavers by Lisa Ko. And I loved that book. It explores immigration from, I think, a different point of view. So the, the main characters are a woman who comes here from China uh, as a young woman, and then her son when he's a young adult. And he has been raised here in America and has been looking for her. And the stories, the way they go back and forth, what they tell us also about the ways in which we are and are not compassionate, and also just the primary connection between a parent and a child and how easily it's we misunderstand what our parents do on our behalf. It was a beautiful book. I loved it. I haven't read it, but it sounds really interesting. I'm, I, I bet if I look it up, I will recognize the cover. I'm a very visual person, mm-hmm. but it sounds fascinating. I do think that is such an interesting focus because I think as a parent, you kind of come full circle. You realize, oh my gosh, all the things my parents did for me, but you don't really understand it often, I think, until you have your own kids. Yeah, I imagine that's true. I imagine that's true. Or as you're an adult, you don't even necessarily have to have your own kids. But I think as an adult, you know, when you're young, you just don't have any idea what goes into it. No. And and if you're lucky, you don't have to have any idea. You know what I mean? If if you know how hard it is for your parents, it's probably hard for you, too. So if you are lucky enough not to have to notice how hard it is for them or what they struggle with, then you've probably got a pretty charmed life. (laughs) Well, that's true. And I guess those are vastly different things because it sounds like they had a lot more going on. But I think even in just kind of a regular household, the parents do, you know, you do do so much. And until you're older, I think you don't always necessarily understand that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. And with respect to the reading fast and reading slow. I'm a faster reader, but I find I don't always remember it. So if I'm loving a book, I definitely slow down to make sure that I ingest the passages and I love it. I won't take, I didn't take me 15 years to read your book, but I did read it slower. (laughs) Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I often find that I end up taking notes about the books that I love. So, and then there are other ones that just stick out with me. Like for instance, Alice McDermott's Someone will always be a revelation to me. Just thinking of the title makes me, breathless. (laughs) I love books like that, where even just thinking about the book either makes me smile or makes me remember something I love so much about it or whatever it is. Yes. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you and I appreciate your time coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. I appreciate it. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. 
In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy this show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.